Well, today is first Sunday in Advent. Uh, the word Advent means coming. In uh, Genesis chapter 3, we effectively see the promise of Advent and the hope that comes with it. In uh, Luke chapter 1, we see the fulfillment of this promise of hope fulfilled. So I'd, I would like for us to read both of these passages side by side, uh, Genesis 3 and Luke 1, as we see hope promised and hope fulfilled. If you would like to follow uh, along, here are the references. Uh, Genesis' first book in the Bible, she'll be able to find that pretty easily. Beginning verse 8 in chapter 3. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten at the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Well, God promises the serpent that he will put enmity between him and the woman, between his offspring and her offspring. Uh, he, the serpent, would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but he would crush the serpent's head. This is a message of hope, a message of the Savior who is to come. Then in Luke chapter 1, we see the account where the long-awaited day of the coming of the Savior is about to arrive. So let's read uh, Luke chapter 1, uh, beginning at verse 26. In the sixth month of the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. and The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth 
in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing shall be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Well, if you had been a fly on the wall listening to this conversation, how do you think you might have described it? Fascinating? No doubt. Newsworthy? Without question. Thrilling? Well, yeah. <laughs> At least it was to Gabriel. He seemed to be excited to be having this conversation with Mary. But how do you think Mary felt about having a conversation with this archangel Gabriel? Well, Luke says she was terrified, greatly troubled, somewhat bewildered. Why would she be terrified, troubled, and puzzled? Well, in verse 29, we, we learn these things, that she was greatly troubled at the saying and trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. I mean, is it good news or maybe something else? So why was Mary troubled? Why would the presence of an angel cause her to be disturbed? If an angel comes and has a conversation with you, I mean, wouldn't you be just thrilled and you'd be in awe perhaps? But uh, you might be, you know, jumping up and down on the inside. But the presence of an angel was not always a sign of glad tidings or of good favor. We go back to... Uh, uh, the Genesis account where Sodom and Gomorrah uh, had sinned to the point where uh, judgment was being meted out, and so God sent the angel to uh, bring judgment. And uh, you remember the familiar story of Passover after the ten plagues. Uh, the, the, after the tenth plague, there was the death angel that was to come, and every household that did not have the blood of the Passover lamb on, on the doorpost uh, of their homes, the death angel would come and claim the firstborn that very night. And so uh, here we see in, in one instance in Genesis, uh, an angel has come to bring judgment, and then another instance in Exodus where an angel has come to bring death. So no wonder Mary is just more than a little bit troubled. But Gabriel rushes to put, to put Mary at ease by informing her that he has come to let her know that she has found favor with God. And this favor is not just for her, but for all people, which we will see as we get a little further along. So uh, to, to, to prove this, I want to draw your attention to, to the elements of, of this conversation as well as the elements of a previous conversation which we read from Genesis. So here, here are the elements. We got an angel, we got a woman who had no children, and a message of all of this working together to signal the changing of history. So as we have already seen, that uh, this is something that, that is happening in Luke chapter 1, but it's not the first place that it happened because we go back to the companion passage that we read earlier from uh, Genesis 3 uh, where we see these same elements working together to indicate that there is a um, magnanimous change in history. 
So we go back to Genesis 3, where we see a fallen angel bringing a lying message to a woman who has had no children, and all of history changes at Eden. But now, now, God sends a trustworthy angel to bring a truth-filled message of hope to a woman who has had no children, and history is changed forever. A child will be miraculously born to this woman, and he will crush the head of the lying messenger. In our text from Luke 1 this morning, we see the same message of hope that was first spoken in the Garden of Eden coming to fruition. So I want us to look, a little, uh, look at it in, in, in more detail and uh, uh, three stages, the, the, the greeting, the annunciation, and the message. Uh, first of all, the greeting. So with this announcement to Mary, God is pushing back against evil. In Colossians uh, chapter 2, verses 13, through 15, uh, we see God doing this at the cross. So you can just listen as I read. He says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside Nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So at the cross, God is pushing back against evil. He is making a public spectacle of the, the serpent and of his hordes. And he is doing that by nailing his son to the cross, having his son nailed to the cross. And not only there, but also in Luke 1, we see God pushing back against evil with the announcement of the birth of his son. So not only at the cross, but also uh, with uh, the, the, the birth of Christ, the, the incarnation of Christ. So let me illustrate it like this. The past several days, if you are a football fan, you uh, have had a feast of, of sorts. So um, I'm sure you had your, your, your uh, feast on Thanksgiving Day, whether it was turkey or something else. We had something else. We have a grandson who is allergic to poultry, so we had no other choice but to grill steaks. Uh, so that's what we did. But um, not, nonetheless, uh, you could have watched uh, the, the Lions uh, lose again, or you could have watched uh, the Cowboys play on Thanksgiving Day, and then Friday there were more college games, and then yesterday, uh, it was a big, a, a big Saturday in college football where you have uh, a lot of bitter rivals going at it head to head, you know, on Michigan and Ohio State, Ohio State, and uh, Alabama against Auburn, and uh, several others, but those are the ones that have national implications. So uh, I, I want to use a, a, a football uh, illustration here. Uh, so let's imagine you have two teams on the field, and uh, they are both nationally ranked, and whoever wins this game is going to have an inside track toward the uh, national championship. And so 
the, the game is hotly contested, and at one point, uh, the, uh, at, at a pivotal point of the game, the coach of one team calls for a daring play. It's a play that they have been working on all season just for their arch rival. And so they get on the field, and uh, there's not much time left, and uh, maybe they're, they're within striking distance of a touchdown if everything goes well, but the, the defense is keyed up on this. And so they sniff out the play, and they uh, knock down the, uh, the lineman in the front, they get to the quarterback and throw him for a loss. And now they're even further away from the goal line, and there is even less time now than there was before. So what is the coach going to do now? Well, this is a daring coach, and so what he does is not come up with some other uh, play. Uh, he calls the same play all over again. Only this time, he gets his team together, and they call a timeout, and he said, this time we're going to run the same play that we ran before, only this time I want you to run it down their throats. And so the, the team is all hyped up, they're ready to go, and the coach says, all right, one, 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 one more thing. And he, he taps the star quarterback on the shoulder, and he says, I want you to sit this one out. And he puts in the second string quarterback to uh, go into the game and work his magic. And so the defense is all keyed up because now they see that. They think that they have knocked out the star quarterback and they've got the second stringer. And so they are more confident now than ever before. Uh, nonetheless, the play goes into the motion. The second string quarterback drops back for the pass. He heaves a Hail Mary, pun intended, and toward the end zone, uh, one of the players jumps up on the offensive team, grabs it, crosses the goal line, touchdown, game over. Everyone celebrates, at least on that side. So, what's the analogy here? Well, we'll begin by asking this question. Who would ever think of using a second stringer in such an important contest? I can't think of any coach who would do a thing like that. But this is exactly what God did. You see, the, the, the first um, run through on the play was in Genesis 3, where there was a perfect woman who had no child. And there, there's this perfect in, environment, but yet this uh, perfect woman was unsuccessful. She is thrown for a loss. But in the second contest, God uses the very same play, only this time he uses a second stringer, an imperfect woman, a sinner to accomplish his plan. And the result is fantastic. God crushes the serpent's head and thus he demoralizes evil and at the same time gives us hope. That's the first stage, the greeting. <laughs> Pretty nice greeting. Let's go to the annunciation, you know, the, the announcement. 
As we've already noted, Mary is greatly troubled with the appearing of the angel Gabriel, but the, the, the angel says, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. So at this point, we need to realize something. Now, just because you have found favor with God does not mean that you will be exempt from having a hard time in life. Now that flies against everything in the way that we are put together. We like to believe that if the favor of God is upon us, we can live in this uh, bubble uh, that insulates us against disease and against uh, accidents, against pain, against failure, against anything bad that might happen. Mary was highly favored. She was highly favored. Now, I don't see anywhere in Scripture where she lived in a bubble of protection. I don't see anywhere where uh, Mary was spared the grief and the anguish. Can you imagine anything more gut-wrenching, anything that would bring you more anguish than to see your son treated the way that he was uh, prior to the crucifixion and then to, 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 to stand there and watch them nail your son to the cross and stand there and watch him die? The sword did indeed pierce her heart. And so uh, let's get something in our minds that when we are blessed and highly favored by God, that does not always translate into living in an insulated bubble where nothing bad is going to happen to you and you will be financially successful in life and in business and whatever you decide to pursue uh, everything is going to go your way. Let's get rid of that idea now, if we haven't already. So, having said that, what does it mean to be highly favored if it doesn't mean exemption from trouble and basking in affluence? I want you to imagine something, uh, whipping for a moment. Um, uh, imagine it were possible for you to engineer a bridge that is more magnificent than the Golden Gate Bridge. Or that you could paint a masterpiece more magnificent than the one that Michelangelo painted on the Sistine Chapel, of the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Or perhaps that you could compose a symphony more majestic than Beethoven's Fifth or Handel's Messiah. You think you could do that? Well, it's barely possible because more mortal human beings did those things. But nobody, and I mean nobody, no mortal human being can give birth to God. It's absolutely impossible. And yet, it happened. With man, things are impossible. But with God, all things are possible. God can do anything. Now, when the, when the angel Gabriel brings this news to Mary that she is highly favored and she is going to conceive of, of the Holy Spirit and she is going to bring forth uh, a, a son who is going to be... Um, you know, the, the most high, that he will be great. In other words, uh, she's going to give birth to God. 
she's a little confused. You know, how can this be? Seeing that you know I am a virgin, she says. But uh, again, uh, it's just good for us to see that it is impossible for man, but nothing is impossible with God. And now we come to the third stage of this message of hope from the angel Gabriel to Mary. Um, that is the, the message itself. I might have this on a slide here. Um, no, I don't. So just listen. Starting at verse 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? Earlier, earlier in the chapter, Gabriel uh, came to Zechariah as Frey read for us in the, uh, uh, the devotional and, um, and, and the reading of, of the Advent candle. That the uh, angel Gabriel, the same angel, uh, went to Zechariah some six months prior uh, to inform him that his wife Elizabeth would conceive in their old age and give birth to a son whom they would name John. Zechariah couldn't believe it. It's too fantastic, too marvelous to be true. So he's not really sure he can believe the angel. But when this same angel, Gabriel, comes to Mary and tells her that she will conceive and bear the Son of the Most High and call his name Jesus, she doesn't understand how that could happen because she is a virgin. What the angel is saying to her is humanly impossible. What is so amazing, says Martin Luther, is how Mary believed the word Gabriel spoke to her, even though Zechariah could not. Believing, Luther says, is the hardest part. Sometimes it's hard for us to believe that God is actually with us, isn't it? Believing that is hard. Sometimes it's hard to believe that God truly cares. If we're so highly favored, why are things not going better for us? We have, we have difficulties sometimes believing that we really are blessed and highly favored. Which is why you might want to lean into Gabriel's description of Mary as the favored one. What made Mary favored was not her family line, or her personal achievements, or her pure heart. She's favored because God chose her. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, uh, Paul describes Christians as highly favored. I, I might have this on the screen for us. Uh, Paul says, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed, that word blessed, uh, really means, more accurately, made us highly favored uh, in the beloved. He says God chose us to be his sons and his daughters out of nothing but his favor. In the end, neither you nor I are really that much different from Mary. By human standards, we're all insignificant. 
We have done nothing to justify God coming to us. But God has shown his favor on us. He has lavished his grace upon us. So we too are blessed and highly favored. Some of you probably seen the Shawshank Redemption. It's a famous movie. Uh, there's a scene there where uh, the protagonist, Andy Dufresne, uh, has made his way uh, to the uh, little booth there where the, 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 the sound is broadcast to the prison yard. He has been incarcerated unjustly for having killed his wife. He didn't do it, but he's having to serve time anyway. And he spent a lot of time in uh, solitary confinement. Uh, just wanted to set the stage for those of you who may not have seen the, the movie. But uh, <clears throat> Andy Dufresne goes through the, 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 there's a collection of record albums there and he pulls one out that's an, an opera by Mozart. And he places it on the turntable and he turns the volume up high so that after all the speakers squeak uh, for a moment, uh, when after they've been turned up high, and he, he plays this music. Uh, it's Mozart. And this could be my favorite part of the, of the whole movie where guards and prisoners alike just stand there in stunned silence for a few seconds, listening to this music, which brings them just a glimmer of hope in the midst of this prison where they have been assigned to be. It's a marvelous scene, powerful scene. But you know, it's not true. <laughs> it's in the script. Someone wrote the script based upon a fictitious story. But I want to tell you about another occasion, only this one is true. In June 1992, during the height of the Bosnian War, there were snipers in the streets of Sarajevo. And the snipers were looking to take down anybody and everybody who was on the other side, even children. The snipers would shoot and kill children because they just happened to be on the wrong side of the conflict. So you can imagine how difficult it would be for life to go on if in order to get to the store and get some food for your family, you would have to walk out into the public square where snipers are standing by, ready to take you out just because you happen to be on a different side of the conflict than they are on. Well, there's one morning where the bakery opened up and there was a long line. There's 22 people in that line who were waiting for the bakery to open up so people could go in and get maybe a crust of bread to feed their family for a day or for a, a, a period of time. And while these 22 people are standing there in line waiting, a bomb goes off. And all 22 people are killed. That just about broke the back of the people of Sarajevo. How can you go on in life knowing that if you walk out in public, someone's going to take a pot shot at you? Or if they don't do that, they're going to detonate a bomb where you're standing. 
it's enough to make you want to give up. But there was a man who was the chief uh, cellist for the, the, the symphony. I hope I pronounced his name right, Vidran Smilovic, uh, who is known as the cellist of Sarajevo. A book has been written about the story that I'm about to tell you. So uh, I'll call him Vidran, I think I can pronounce that. Or maybe I'll just call him the cellist of Sarajevo. The morning following the bombing, he goes out to the very place, the very place where the bomb went off and brings his cello, he's wearing his tux and he sits down. I think I might have a picture of him here. He sits there with his cello in that bombed out area and begins to play a piece called Adagio in G minor. Probably never heard of it, but you probably heard the song because it's in the soundtrack of over two dozen movies. I uh, thought maybe I would maybe record a piece and let you listen to it while you look at a picture of the cellist, but the song is eight minutes long and I don't know you wouldn't want to be here uh, that long listening, so just go look up uh, cellist to Sarajevo, a song he played, and uh, I'm sure you can find it on YouTube or something. And, and listen if, if you would like. But nonetheless, uh, the, the, the cellist of Sarajevo goes out and he plays a song. It's, it's a moving song. It's, it's very deep. It's, uh, there's a lot of uh, catharsis with that, uh, a lot of solemnity. But he plays that song, eight minutes, realizing that there are snipers perched all around him who could take a pot shot at him at any time, or maybe another bomb, or maybe an artillery shell would come and he would be taken away with that. But that didn't stop him, he finished playing. And the next day, at 4 p.m., just like he did the previous day, he went out and he played that song. He played it for 22 consecutive days at the same time every day. Snipers knew exactly what time he was gonna be there, he played, the song for each, one time for each of the people who was killed. Later on when asked why he did that, he said, someone needs to bring hope to our people. In essence, this is the message of the angel Gabriel to the Virgin Mary. Because when you are held under the sway of the enemy that we have, the one who is evil personified, and when we have a sin nature to go along with that, which came as a result of, of Eve and Adam um, sinning in the garden, we have that sin nature. So we need a message of hope. And don't we need a message of hope in this day and age of a pandemic and economic uncertainty to go along with sin and with evil in the world? This is why we need Advent. It's why we need the message of hope. 
But the good news for us is that we have hope, not just some baseless desire, but a hope that has been guaranteed because Jesus really did come to the Virgin Mary. He really was born just as scripture says he would be. And he did grow up and live a sinless life just as he had to to represent us in life. And he really did die the death that he died to represent us, to pay for our sins, for our transgressions, so that we might have hope that one day we will live in perfect bodies, in a perfect environment, a perfect world, a perfect universe, among other perfect people, because the perfect one came and represented us in life and in death. Praise be to God. Thank you, our Father, for giving us your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen.